You are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Coming up after the BBC headlines, the California Report looks at the challenges of home COVID testing for blind people. Sacramento County suffers an unprecedented surge in COVID-related hospitalizations. And the state's farm workers find a downside to hard-won new overtime benefits. Paul Emery talks economic policy with Gary Zimmerman, and Mark Cuniberti is here with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Starting tomorrow, Americans can order free at-home COVID-19 tests at covidtest.gov. The federal program is set to provide half a billion tests across the country. To start, people will be able to order up to four free tests per residential address. And the Biden administration says the tests could ship in 12 days or less. That's welcome news here in California, where we've gotten used to testing outages at pharmacies and jam-packed walk-up testing sites. But even if tests become more readily available... There are other barriers to entry for certain communities. The California Report's Keith Mizuguchi explains. People who are blind say the tests are not designed for those who can't see. Shane Snyder is director of programs for the Society of the Blind in Sacramento. What we're finding uh, is that these tests are not accessible to folks who are blind. And by accessible, I mean it's something that a blind person can use safely, efficiently, independently, without side of assistance. The tests often require people to be precise when putting liquid drops in tiny spaces to make sure the sample is not contaminated. Snyder says blind individuals also can't see the visual test results, which makes them much more reliant on someone who can see. And while many people who are blind live with family, friends, or loved ones who can help out, others are quite independent doing everyday activities by themselves. For those individuals, the COVID tests are proving to be a frustrating challenge. In-person testing can also be difficult, especially for those who rely on public transit. With the rapid rise in cases, Snyder says some just don't want to take a chance. There are people out there who are making the choice to protect themselves by staying at home and not going out to get a test and just uh, riding it out and hoping that they're not going to expose themselves and get infected. Snyder says he hopes companies that produce these tests consult with his organization and other advocates for the blind, because the need is out there and they have a tangible solution. For the California Report, I'm Keith Mizuguchi. Sacramento County is seeing an unprecedented surge in COVID-19-related hospitalizations. As of Sunday, nearly 550 COVID-positive patients are in county hospitals there. That breaks the record of 518, which was set during the winter surge in 2020. Hospitalizations have more than doubled in just the past two weeks as the Omicron variant continues to drive more transmission in the community. County health officials are urging residents not to call 911 or visit emergency rooms for mild cases of COVID or to simply get tested. 
For the first time starting this year, agricultural employers in California, like farmers and farm labor contractors with 26 or more employees, have to pay their workers overtime after an eight-hour day or 40-hour week. While farmworker advocates are celebrating this change, as Valley Public Radio's Mari Bolaños reports, it's also created some unintended consequences. Lourdes Cárdenas has worked in the fields in the San Joaquin Valley for two decades. In the past, she says, she would sometimes work up to 10 extra hours a day without getting paid overtime. Sometimes that meant having to pay babysitters for the extra time she spent in the fields. She says that would stretch their paychecks, sometimes making it harder to pay the rent or buy groceries. Somos trabajadores como todos, pero no se nos valoraba. No se nos valoraba el, el overtime. She says they are workers like everyone else, but they weren't valued like the others until now. Heriberto Fernandez with the United Farmworker Foundation says farm workers have been excluded from overtime benefits since the Fair Labor Standard Act of 1938. Back then, agricultural workers were mostly African-American workers, and they were excluded from the New Deal. It's now Mexican-American farm workers that are mostly picking our fruits and vegetables. And the same rule, you know, continued, this injustice continued. He says it's taken 80 years to expand these benefits to farm workers. It's a very historic and momentous occasion for farm workers that they now, in the first time in the history of agricultural labor, they have the same rights as all other Californians do. And he says farm workers will be able to spend more time with their families. Before this law, farm workers usually work 10 hours a day or 60 hours a week. But Ryan Jacobson with the Fresno County Farm Bureau says these new requirements will push many farmers to limit workers' shifts to eight hours a day or 40 hours a week to avoid paying the overtime. And Jacobson says it's not just farmers who could benefit from these longer weeks. There are seasons when working longer hours, some parts of the year, make up for the other times. When they aren't able to work because there's not as much availability of farm agricultural work than there is at other times. He says since the passage of this law, growers have started replacing some of their more manual labor crops like citrus fruit with mechanized crops like nuts. Back at Lourdes Cárdenas' house in Fresno, her partner Erasmo Venegas is just coming home from a day in the fields trimming almond and pistachio trees. He says he's worried about these new changes. He used to work six days a week, but he says now his employer isn't allowing it. He says it's bad. They're only giving them 40 hours and it's just not sufficient. He says he might take on a second job on Saturdays to make up for the lost income. But Lourdes Cardenas is optimistic that come spring, farmers will have to pay farm workers overtime or they won't be able to complete their harvests. For the California Report, I'm Adi Bolaños in Fresno. And that story was part of the Central Valley News Collaborative, which is supported by the Central Valley Community Foundation, with technology and training support by Microsoft. Support for the California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital, 
helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor, PersonalCapital.com, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, January 18th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Alex Hall. Thanks for listening. In regional news, the Nevada County Board of Supervisors will meet Wednesday at the Gold Miners Inn in Grass Valley to kick off its annual workshop. The board will review its priorities and fine-tune objectives for 2022, according to reporting from Ubinet.com. No formal action or votes will be taken. Wednesday, the board will report on the state of the district, focusing on topics including economic development and emergency preparedness. On Thursday, the agenda will include cannabis, homelessness, housing, and broadband. Friday, the county will review and finalize its objectives. During such special meetings of the Board of Supervisors, public comment is only taken on agenda items. For this meeting, the public can only comment at the beginning of the first meeting day, which is Wednesday. The deadline is passed for leaving written comments, but the public may comment in person. The public can watch the meeting from inside the Gold Miners Inn ballroom or at the My Nevada County website, on Nevada County Media Channel 17, or on Sudden Link Channel 78 in Eastern County. The Nevada County Building Department has announced that residents needing serious repairs from damage caused by the late December snowstorms will receive priority permitting and have local fees waived through the Nevada County Community Development Agency. Craig Griesbach, the Building Department Director, said the goal of these types of fee waivers and having an expedited permitting process is to help the community build back quickly in a cost-effective way. The county's December 27th emergency proclamation made the fee waivers available to properties that require major permitted repairs, including electrical damage, structural roof repair, septic and well repair, deck reconstruction, and foundation repair. The fee waivers will cover permit fees for storm-related repairs through December 30th, 2023. A plaque honoring Leb Hirschman and the Jewish Gold Rush community was installed at Hirschman's Pond in Nevada City on Monday, according to the Nevada County Landmarks Commission. The pond was registered as one of Nevada County's newest landmarks by the Board of Supervisors on July 13, 2021. Hirschman's Pond is what remains of the hydraulic mine operated by Nevada County pioneer Leb Hirschman. The plaque was installed by the Nevada County Historical Landmarks Commission with the cooperation of the Greater Cement Hill Neighborhood Association. Ubinet.com reports that the Cinderella Project, a nonprofit that provides free dresses and other attire to high school students for proms and other special events, has become part of Bright Futures for Youth. The Cinderella Project ensures that cost is not an issue for students to attend their high school proms. About 100 students benefit from the Cinderella Project every year. Individuals and small business owners have donated hundreds of dresses since the Cinderella Project started in 2010. The Cinderella Project will remain at 650 Gold Flat Road in Nevada City. Bright Futures for Youth will eventually move the boutique shop to the soon-to-open Neo Youth Center on McCourtney Road in Grass Valley near the Nevada County Fairgrounds. Turning to regional weather, dry, mild days continue with some patchy late night and morning valley fog. This evening in Nevada City in Grass Valley, partly cloudy with a low around 43 degrees. 
Wednesday, sunny with a high near 60 and a low of 47. In Truckee tonight, mainly clear with a low of 17. Wednesday in Truckee, morning clouds giving way to sunny skies in the afternoon with a high of 39 and a low of 20. In Sacramento this evening, partly cloudy with a low of 37. Wednesday in Sacramento, partly cloudy with a high of 58 and a low of 38. Next up, KVMR's Paul Emery talks to economist Gary Zimmerman about the president's nominees to the Federal Reserve Board. How might the Fed respond to the mixed messages the economy is sending, especially the pressures on inflation? This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb, wealth management advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Well, hello, Gary. Um, Last month, we spoke about economic forecasts for 2022. So let's cover a few of those topics today, starting with the Fed and then some of the recent economic news. My first question is, what can you tell us about the three nominations to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve? Well, Paul, hopefully after nearly 40 years of working at the Fed, I can tell you a little bit. Uh, When the when the Federal Reserve Board is full, uh, fully staffed, there are seven Federal Reserve Board governors, including the chair and vice chair. They are nominated by the president of the United States, and then they must be confirmed by the U.S. Senate before they join the Federal Reserve Board and become monetary policy and regulatory policy makers. Is it unusual to have several nominees like we have now? And can you tell us a little bit about each of them? Um, yes, it is unusual to have so many nominations at one time. You know, in addition, you have the two board members uh, who President Biden has nominated to be Fed chair and Fed vice chair. Uh, he's renominated Jay Powell to continue for another four years as Fed chair um, and nominated current Fed governor Leo Brainerd uh, to become the new vice chair. And then the vacancies, the three vacancies on the seven member board. President Biden has nominated two well-qualified economics professors, uh, Lisa Cook from Michigan State University and and Philip Jefferson uh, from Davidson College uh, to join the board, assuming they're confirmed by the U.S. Senate. And President Biden has nominated Sarah Bloom Raskin, a former Fed governor and former state banking chief regulator, uh, to be the new Fed vice chair for regulation. These are political nominations, so they do have to be approved by the Senate. Is that? Yes, that's right. Yes. And they all have to be approved by the Senate or confirmed by the Senate. Yes. And uh, is there any anticipated problem with that? Um, It's hard. It's hard to know. My quick read of it is that they're, you know, well, well qualified. It would be a very diverse board. It actually would probably be the first um, time the board had a majority of women as uh, Federal Reserve governors as well. Uh, Let's change the subject. The recent jobs and unemployment numbers seem to be giving us a mixed message on the economy. Uh, What is your take on this? 
Yes, I agree. The uh, unemployment rate fell from 4.2% in November down to 3.9% in December. And that puts the unemployment rate in the ballpark for what the Fed policymakers actually considered as full employment at their December 21 projections on the economy. So that suggests the labor markets are tightening. And, you know, we see increases in wages, which you know, are tending to confirm that tightening. Um, on the other hand, the, the payroll job numbers only increased by about 200,000 jobs in December, you know, well below what most forecasters were expecting. Uh, but that, you know, that's only a one month number and you've got COVID, you know, having an effect as well. But that's also, you know, 200,000 is well below the pace of jobs that were created last year when you know, there were 6.4 million payroll jobs added in 2021. That's the most um, by a long shot uh, ever, at least since the data have been collected. So, you know, obviously there's some weakness and disruptions in the economy as, you know, as a result of COVID. Um, you know, Fed Chair Powell noted that the other <laughs> recently, and, you know, it can, COVID continues to weaken the economy. But, you know, full employment does suggest the Fed should start, you know, taking its monetary policy stimulus of low interest rates and its bond purchases away as the economy hits full employment especially with the inflation numbers that have been rising. Yeah, well, that was my next question. So <laughs> pretty good news on jobs, but not so good on inflation. Uh, what's your take on that? Yeah, inflation, of course, is we should think of that as the overall change in a basket of goods and services at the national level or price level. Um, and the CPI or consumer price index for all items in 2021 rose at about a 7% annual rate. That's, you know, that's fast considering that, you know, Fed hadn't been able to get the inflation rate up to their 2% goal for, for a number of years. And the latest personal consumption expenditure price index that the Fed is actually setting its goal for, you know, you know, is, is likely to come in well above that, you know, 2%, uh, far above that 2% as well. So, you know, everyone's interested in those inflation forecasts and with COVID and supply chain disruptions, you know, pushing the inflation rate, uh, possibly, you know, looking at the, at the highest level we've seen in decades, you know, that, you know, raises lots of concerns about inflation continuing and, you know, what rate it's at now and, and so forth. But, you know, I think labor markets are approaching full employment. That suggests policy tightening. Inflation is rising and well above the Fed's goal. That suggests policy tightening as well. Well, uh, I'll tell you one thing about inflation, it affects everybody. I mean, just fill your gas tank as an example. <laughs> I did last night and I noticed uh, <laughs> noticed it. Yeah. Maybe we, need, not to. maybe we need bigger gas tanks and we'll just fill them up when inflation <laughs> is low. Well, Gary, I think that's uh, all we have for today. And uh, thank you so much. And we'll look forward to our chat in a couple of weeks. Sounds good, Paul. Thank you. Take care. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. How now, Dow Jones? Do you ever wonder why your investment portfolio doesn't follow the ups and downs of the indexes that show up on the weekday news? Mark Cuniberti explains in tonight's Money Matters.
Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Many investors wonder why their investment portfolios don't keep up with the major indexes they see on the evening news. Specifically, there are the Dow 30, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, the Russell, and a plethora of other perhaps not so well-known indexes whose coverages span the globe. Indexes measure a basket of stocks that are in that particular index. For example, the Dow encompasses 30 stocks thought to represent a broad base of industries in the United States. One cannot invest in the index per se, as it only is a measuring stick for the stocks in it. Like many other indexes, their makeup is adjusted according to what metric the measuring method stipulates. One can buy the stocks measured by the index, but because adjustments are made to that index from time to time, it would be difficult to mirror the index exactly. There are funds that attempt to replicate the measuring metric of the underlying index, but the key word here is attempt. Most of these funds, however, do a pretty good job at least coming very close to replicating in its movements the index underneath the fund. Because these funds do mirror the subject index, if an investor holds one of these index proxy-type funds, their portfolios will more or less follow the performance of that index. Now to the question at hand, why does my portfolio sometimes not move with the index I see on the evening news? In other words, if I see the Dow moved up 12% for the year, why did my portfolio move up, say, only 4%? The question is a good one, because understanding the answer will also give an investor a better understanding as to how his portfolio is constructed. In other words, what does he hold and why does he hold it? It is common for advice advisors and astute investors to adhere to at least some, if not all, of the what is called modern portfolio theory, MPT, which gives a matrix on what to hold in the portfolio and what percentages of each might be considered. Not everyone might agree with the modern portfolio theory and their allocation percentages might differ, but the theory basically uses good common sense in its makeup of recommendations. Quite simply, modern portfolio theory recommends holding a basket of the different stocks and industries known as diversification and adding that to a percentage of fixed income securities. Fixed income are securities that offer a fixed or somewhat fixed rate of return with more emphasis on the fixed rate of return, hence the name fixed income, in lieu of price movement, which we know as growth. The thinking is fixed income can move opposite of stocks in price and offer a set rate of return so the investor can rely on some sort of what I call rent money instead of relying on a stock going up in order to make money. Fixed income is usually debt instruments such as bonds, notes, or other types of debt, and also would include preferred stocks and certain funds and baskets that encompass similar instruments. Fixed income, although has the word fixed in it, does not mean the price cannot move, and therefore it does not mean it cannot go down in price. Fixed income holdings can move up and down. It is thought and historically verified, however, more often than not, that fixed income can be more stable than traditional stocks. Fixed income also has a tendency to move in the opposite direction of stocks as investors gravitate from taking more risk in an up market and then selling off their fixed income holdings to go for higher returns in stocks. When they're nervous, however, investors may sell stocks and buy more fixed income for the perceived safety holding that fixed income historically has demonstrated. Because of the relationship of the inverse movements of fixed income and traditional stocks, which means they move in opposite of each other, but not always. Their price movements may often offset each other and therefore they may 
handcuff the portfolio's total return when compared to the indexes in general, and as a result, portfolio performance often lags the gains or losses of the major indexes. Fixed income may lose money and may at times move in concert with stocks and do not guarantee against losses. Returns may not be guaranteed, and modern portfolio theory does not guarantee performance nor prevent losses. Past performance does not guarantee future results, of course. Investing involves risk. You can lose money. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any securities and does not represent the opinion of any bank, RIA, or brokerage firm. I hold a BA in economics with honors and host Money Matters Radio on 67 station nationwide. My website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I own California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. That does it for this edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Converti. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30 on Educationally Speaking, host Scott W. Lay talks to Silver Springs High School students about a new way of conducting school discipline, a restorative process run by the students themselves. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. At 8, more of the music you love with Mikhail Graham's The Other Side. And at 10, Rock Outside the Box with Rue Cantata. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. Check out our website, kvmr.org, to hear expanded versions of many of our stories and interviews. Or listen to the KVMR Evening News wherever you get your podcasts. This is Joyce Miller wishing you a safe Tuesday evening. 